let me begin this morning as we explore the scriptures from the book of Acts. And in doing so, we look at chapter 17, which records a story of one of the great missionary journeys of the apostle Paul. Starting in verse one, the Bible says this. When Paul and his companions had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. Now, as was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue and for three Sabbaths or for three weeks straight, he reasoned with them from the scriptures. Now, the book of Acts is written by a man named Luke. He is a follower of Jesus, and he is the historian of the early church. Luke is recording the actions of the apostles, hence the name, the book of Acts. He's recording as Christianity is spreading like wildfire throughout the Roman Empire. A majority of the book of Acts focuses on the three great missionary journeys of the Apostle Paul. And in fact, theologians estimate that by the end of his life, Paul would plant a minimum of 14 churches and travel over 10,000 miles by foot, preaching the gospel across all of Europe. See, Paul and his companions are possessed with the idea that the region must hear the message of Christ. It doesn't matter how many times they lock him up, how many times they leave him for dead, how many times he is shipwrecked, stoned, threatened, attacked, mocked, or abused. Paul simply refuses to give up on the high call of God. Because as long as there is a city in Europe that needs the gospel, there is a reason for Paul to endure. Now, Paul is far from perfect. He is known for getting in arguments with the other apostles. One day he gets upset and fires his best friend Barnabas. He publicly lashes out at John Mark. Paul is not gonna win the most likable evangelist of the year award. He probably did not get any Starbucks gift cards for Pastor's Appreciation Month. He would likely be canceled by the Christian bloggers of his era. But like Leonard Ravenhill once said, if Christ loves me, does it matter who hates me? If Christ smiles on me, does it matter who frowns on me? And if Christ says I'm his, does it matter who rejects me? See, beyond his imperfections, what Paul had most was a burning desire to see a continent transformed by the power of Jesus. And watch, God would use the imperfections of Paul to spread the perfections of Christ and in doing so, set the world ablaze. And I don't know about you, friend, but that should give us all great hope today. I want you to notice something interesting this morning. All over scripture, the Bible tells us that Paul's primary assignment is to reach the Gentiles. In fact, in Romans 11, 
he's called the apostle to the Gentiles. In Acts 9, it says Paul is a chosen instrument to carry God's name before the Gentiles. In Galatians 2, it says Paul bears the responsibility to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. In Ephesians 3, it says God gave Paul grace to teach the boundless riches of Christ to the Gentiles. Yet often in the life of Paul, and especially in Acts 17, Paul would walk into a city, and as he would begin his evangelistic efforts, he would do so by preaching for three weeks straight in the Jewish synagogue. Now you gotta ask yourself, if the Bible clearly says that Paul's mission is to the Gentiles, why does he spend so much time and effort trying to reach the Jews? I'm glad you asked, so let me tell you why. See, Paul writes the theology of the church in the book of Romans. He writes how we should think about the affairs of life from God's perspective. Specifically in Romans 11, Paul outlines, watch, what Christians ought to believe about Israel and the Jewish people. And this morning, I want to read you a selection of those verses from Romans 11. They will be on your screens out of the New Living Translation. And just see if you this morning can pick up on what Paul is attempting to say. Let's start here in verse one of Romans 11. I ask, has God rejected his own people, the nation of Israel? Of course not. Did God's people stumble and fall beyond recovery? Of course not. Oh, they were disobedient, so God made salvation available to the Gentiles but he wanted his own people to become jealous and claim it for themselves. Now, if the Gentiles were enriched because the people of Israel turned down God's offer of salvation, think how much greater a blessing the world will share when they finally accept it. And since Abraham and the other patriarchs were holy, their descendants will also be holy. For if the roots of the tree are holy, the branches will be too. But some of these branches from Abraham's tree, some of the people of Israel, they've been broken off. And you Gentiles who were branches from a wild olive tree, you have been grafted in. So now you also receive the blessing God had promised Abraham and his children. But watch, you must not brag about being grafted in to replace the branches that were broken off. For you are just a branch, you are not the root. Well, you may say, these branches were broken off to make room for me. Yes, but remember, these branches were broken off because they didn't believe in Christ. And you are there because you do believe. But don't think highly of yourself, for if God did not spare the original branches, he won't spare you either. And if the people of Israel turn from their unbelief, they will be grafted in again. For God has the power to graft them back into the olive tree. 
I want you to understand this mystery so that you will not feel proud about yourselves. Some of the people of Israel have hard hearts, but this will last only until the full number of Gentiles comes to Christ. And so all Israel will be saved. Many of the people of Israel are now enemies of the good news. And this benefits you Gentiles. Yet they are still the people he loves because he chose their ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob for God's gift and God's call can never be withdrawn. Now someone got mad at me on social media and they said, how dare you support Israel? Don't you know that they have abortion and gay marriage in their country? Of course they do. They are a secular nation, much like our nation. But you are still missing the point. I don't support Israel because they have conservative politics. I don't support Israel because I approve of all of their decisions. In fact, if I were to be honest, there are a lot of things that Israel does as a nation that I really disagree with politically, theologically, socially, and spiritually. So why, why then do I support Israel and love the Jewish people? Number one, because I love what God loves. And number two, because I believe what Romans 11 teaches. Israel has not been rejected by God. Israel has not stumbled and fallen beyond recovery. The roots of the Jewish people are still holy. When they turn to Christ, they will be engrafted back into the tree. All of Israel, will be saved and God's call can never be withdrawn. Have the Gentiles replaced the Jew? In my opinion, no. Has the church replaced Israel? In my opinion, no. Now watch. We have been engrafted into the tree of Christ. And hear me, Gentile believers are not second-class citizens. But Paul warns, be careful, Gentiles. Don't get prideful and do not boast against the broken branch of Israel because there will come a day where the Jewish people turn to Christ and that which is broken off will be engrafted once again. So why does Paul preach in the synagogues even though he is called to reach the Gentiles because Paul understands that Yahweh is a covenant keeping God. So why are we doing a joint event today? with Jewish friends from different synagogues across all of Washington and Oregon. Because although my mission is to reach Gentiles for Jesus, the power of the gospel is so strong that it will even cause those who have been broken off to be engrafted once again. And if the God that you serve is so anemic that his power can't reach a historic people, then the God that you serve is not the one who's recorded in the pages of this book. Now, verse three, the Bible tells us exactly what Paul was doing in the synagogue for three weeks straight. Watch this. He was explaining and demonstrating 
that the Messiah had to suffer and rise again from the dead. And he said, this Jesus who I preach to you, he is the Christ. (laughs) Now watch, some of the Jews were persuaded and they joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. I love this, you gotta see this. Paul explained and he demonstrated. See, I feel like a lot of churches today explain to death. This is how the Holy Spirit is supposed to work. We just don't ever see it. This is theoretically how a person's life gets transformed. We just don't ever make time for it. Let me give you all the info and the facts and the fundamentals and the charts and the graphs and the lectures. Hear me, friend. We don't suffer from a lack of explanation in the Western church. We suffer from a lack of demonstration. I'm coming Sunday because I want to see the power of God at work in someone's life. You can know the Greek, but have you met God? You can quote the Hebrew, but do you know him? You can memorize the text, but have you met the maker of the heavens and the earth? You know what we did last week when we baptized 124 people in a single day? We didn't just explain the gospel, we demonstrated it. And I woke up Monday morning to an email in my inbox letting me know that The Pursuit had a brand new review on its Google business profile. Now, if you were to look up our reviews today, you would notice it's either one star or it's five star, not a whole lot in the middle. So I was nervous to pull up the email. And what I read was so interesting and I think it makes this point so eloquently. So I wanted to share it with you today. It was our first time attending. Occasion was our oldest granddaughter's baptism. A very popular event, very crowded. Parking was a regular circus event. Not wrong. As we learned that there were multiple scheduled events, which were causal effects for the parking. I made three turns around the building until an ADA spot opened up. Overall, the event was a ruckus one. Considering this was our first time attending, The pastor appears to be a very motivated speaker who easily whips the following up into a controlled state of religious frenzies. Overall, it was enjoyable. The overall effect on a young girl's life will be everlasting. God bless her, five stars. That's a demonstration of the power of God. convinced that the world is looking for a church and a people who so believe what the gospels declare that it becomes intrinsically manifested through the demonstration of their life. This is in part what we will do tonight. Talk is cheap. 
So we are demonstrating this evening that the church in Seattle will not allow the celebration of the spirit of Hamas to go unchallenged in our city. And I can promise you this, I'm gonna use this as an opportunity to minister to both Jews and Gentiles about the hope that we have in the God-man named Christ Jesus. On my phone call this week, the local Jewish coalition leaders asked me, Pastor, would it be okay if we brought some strollers to the United for Israel march at 4.30 p.m.? I was confused. I said, I said sure, but how many kids are, are you expecting at this rally? They said, none. We are bringing empty strollers with the pictures of all the children still held hostage by Hamas. You got to see this today. The enemy is, un, is emboldened when he goes uncontested. I didn't get into this business to play it safe and never rock the boat. But for too long, the enemy has wreaked havoc on the minds and the families of this region and churches have been quiet. What if someone disagrees with us? What if someone gets offended? What if someone says mean things about us online? What if they throw a brick through the front window of the church? Newsflash. They've already done all that and we still ain't quitting. In fact, we're just starting. Because the what if questions that keep me up at night aren't related to a bunch of phony threats on social media. The what if questions that keep me up at night sound like this. What if the church loses her voice? What if no one dares to reach that prodigal? What if that family doesn't meet Jesus? What if our pulpits are only filled with cowards and our pews are only filled with fear? No, Paul didn't have to plant a church in Thessalonica and we didn't have to plant one in Seattle, but we got one now. So what are we gonna do with it? In 1 Corinthians 2 and 4, Paul says, my message and my preaching, they was not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. Romans 5 and 8, Paul says, but God demonstrates his love towards us. That in fact, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 3 and 25, Paul says, God demonstrated his righteousness by presenting Christ as a sacrifice of atonement. I plan to demonstrate the kingdom because our cities deserve an encounter with the power of an unafraid public gospel. The story continues in verse five, but other Jews were jealous. So they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace. They formed a mob. They started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. But when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some brethren to the rulers of the city crying out, these who have turned the world upside down have come here too. 
and Jason has welcomed them into his house. They are all guilty of treason against Caesar for they profess allegiance to another king named Jesus. <laughs> if we had time to read the entire passage today, you would see that in the course of one chapter, Acts 17, Paul causes no less than three riots all by himself. The first is in Thessalonica. We just read it. The second is in Berea. And the third is in Athens. In fact, if you read about Paul's travels, you will see that the most normal reaction to Paul's ministry wasn't salvations, it wasn't healings, it wasn't miracles, it was riots. So much so that Paul's reputation in the city was as a man who has turned the world upside down. Besides the three riots in Acts 17, Acts 13 records a riot in Antioch. Acts 14 records a riot in Iconium and another one in Lystra. Acts 16 records a riot in Philippi. Acts 18 records a riot in Corinth. Acts 19 records a riot in Ephesus. That riot was so large it filled the amphitheater which held 25,000. And Acts 21 records a final riot just for good measure in the city of Jerusalem. In fact, at the end of his life, when Paul stands trial before Governor Felix in Acts 24, his public charges are read to the court. And when they are read, this is what they say. We have found this man to be a troublemaker, stirring up riots all over the world. See, the world saw it as a disqualification, but Paul saw it as a resume builder. Of course this message is disruptive because it swims upstream from the spirit of the age. Now you gotta understand this pursuit. A riot is nothing more than a counterfeit revival. It's what secular people are left with when hope walks out and fatalism walks in. In Thessalonica, we see this happen. A revival of the spirit, watch, provokes a riot in the flesh. And once the enemy rears his head, it gives Paul an opportunity to strike. Four years ago, Marie and I were remodeling a house here in Snohomish. And we had moved in while the remodel was halfway done. Every time we got a little money, we would finish off another little project and it took all of two and a half years to get that house completed. I'll never forget the night that we were getting ready to go to bed in our master bedroom and the floors were torn up all the way to the subfloor. We could actually see through our floors down into the garage beneath our bedroom. And as we were laying in bed, getting ready to fall asleep, all of a sudden, Maria elbowed me and she said, I saw something move in the corner. I said, no, you didn't. It's getting late. We're tired. Just go to bed. A few minutes later, she elbows me again. I just saw it move. I said, no, you didn't, Maria. It's late. Just go to bed. And the third time, we both saw it at the same time. And what it was, was a nasty rat. It had crawled up through the floorboards, running around my room like he owned the place. Now, half of our stuff was still in boxes. We hadn't unpacked. 
I don't know where the glue trap is and the rat trap is and all of the proper tools to use to be able to catch a rat and rid your property of this foul vermin. So I found myself at midnight standing in my boxers in the middle of our master bedroom with a knife in one hand and a golf club in the other. Because when all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. <laughs> I said, I'm about to dispose of this rat. Saw him in the corner, went over there, tried to ruffle the boxes to see if he would run. But by the time that I got over there, he had escaped to another hiding spot. I spent the next hour walking around our bedroom, tipping over every box, looking under every crack, trying to find this rat so that we could have a peaceful night of rest. By the time that an hour had gone by, I had become convinced that the same way that he had came in, he had also left. He had crawled back through the floorboards and exited out the garage. Maria was less than convinced. And so finally, in one last ditch effort, I took my shoe off off and I threw it at the last box that he potentially could be in because everything else I had searched in. And as I did, it exposed that rat. He ran for his life right in front of me. And I took the best Tiger Woods swing you've ever seen. And I sent the rat into eternity. I was thinking about this though in the context of what is happening here in Acts 17. Now you will actually see this play out if you ever come to our Sunday night services in Seattle because we normally don't have anything before and we usually don't have anything after which gives me more time especially in the ministry moments between worship and the preaching of the word. And oftentimes on a Sunday night in Seattle as I sense the Lord is speaking to me I will call out things via a word of wisdom or a word of knowledge in the crowd. I'll say somebody over here you're dealing with a torn rotator cuff. I saw it happen in an accident four years ago. God is healing you now in Jesus' name. Somebody over here, you're dealing with crippling depression and anxiety. You saw your doctor last week. You're trying to get control of it, but you've got this suicidal ideation that's playing in your mind. Tonight, freedom is coming to you. And it's not that any of those things are not true, but what I am doing in a spiritual sense is I am looking for the box that the rat is hiding under because once I find him and take authority over that, all of a sudden the lid on the room lifts off and heaven invades. And so we were doing this just a few weeks ago and then all of a sudden the Lord dropped in my heart there are several people here this evening really dealing with the replay of trauma from sexual abuse. And as soon as I called it out, it was like the wind of heaven rushed into the room. And I addressed the one thing the enemy didn't want me to touch. And when I did, he started to scurry right in front of us. He exposed his hiding spot. We took authority over it. And in doing so, peace came back to the room. Now watch, Paul is undertaking a lot of activities in Thessalonica. He's preaching in the synagogue three weeks straight. A couple of Jews are getting saved. A bunch of Greeks are getting saved. A few prominent women are getting saved. Paul has this brilliant idea. All these people are getting saved. We need to plant a church. He is doing all of these good things, but he has yet to address where the rat is hiding. 
And the Bible says that when Paul and his companions declare that their allegiance does not belong to Caesar, but instead to a man named Jesus. All of a sudden, a mob from the marketplace forms a riot in the city and the enemy rears its ugly head. And in doing so, it gives spiritual strategy to Paul and his associates that the strong man controlling authority in this city is a political allegiance to a man named Caesar. So we're going to do a lot of things. We're going to do a lot of good things. We're going to do a lot of godly things. But one thing that we have to do is expose the strong man that exists in Thessalonica by provoking its hiding spot until a riot is the result. See, and some of you haven't understood the strategy of why we do these marches and why we have these events and why we address the topics that we do because our battle isn't against flesh and blood, but principalities and powers. And you can do a lot of good things, but until you expose the hiding spot of the enemy, you haven't taken authority over the main thing. And there is a demonic principality and power that hides under a box labeled anti-Semitic thinking that exists especially in intellectual liberal strongholds in cities like Seattle. And I can tell you this, I'm turning over every box until the enemy rears its head because I got the sword of the spirit. And when that enemy runs across, we're gonna slay that Goliath and take authority over Seattle. Now watch, watch, watch. God will actually use disruptions in your life to reveal where the enemy has footholds in your spirit. Let me explain to you how that works. For example, if when you lose that job or you lose that contract or you lose that client or the market drops and all of a sudden you find yourself spinning in a downward spiral of doom and gloom, chicken little, the sky is falling, we're never gonna survive, we won't make it, our dreams are dead. That disruption has just revealed a stronghold. And until God is your supply, mammon will be your master. God uses disruptions to reveal areas in our heart that are yet unsurrendered to the supremacy of Christ. Now look, Paul wasn't trying to start a riot, but by the 10th time a riot breaks out in your ministry, you have a pretty good idea about what triggers them. And here's what I love. Paul don't try to moderate it. He don't apologize for it. He doesn't call an emergency economical meeting with a bunch of de denominational leaders to worry about it. Paul thinks to himself, when the power of the gospel disrupts the powers of darkness, of course, a riot is a normal reaction. I am not asking God for a polite and delicate outpouring of his spirit. 
I am not asking God for a nice, contained, and well-respected church where everyone applauds the pastor for being so nuanced and winsome. There is simply too much at stake. I am asking God for his kingdom to violently invade the Pacific Northwest with such disruptive force that tombs are ripped open, drug addicts are set free, families are transformed, demons are scattered, cities are changed. And if a few riots is the price of admission, then sign me up. And this is the problem. We want New Testament power, but we aren't willing to manage New Testament conflict. And if the gospel we preach doesn't disrupt the city we live in, maybe we aren't preaching half the gospel we think we are. Let me in here. When they heard this, the crowds and the rulers of the city, watch, they were stirred up, thrown, into turmoil. What do you mean this group of crazy Christians won't bow to Caesar? What do you mean? They're gonna ruin everything. What do you mean? We've built an entire system around allegiance to false idols. What do you mean? These people won't pledge their allegiance to our gods. They were stirred up. You know that phrase stirred up in the Greek means this to disturb like a tornado. Watch, I think when God begins to work in your life, it's a lot less like a cool breeze on a beach and a lot more like an F5 tornado in a trailer park. See, I need you to trust God today because his tornadoes will only disturb anything that holds you back or this city back from encountering him. We prayed for revival. Did you think it would come without a little mess in the streets? When I look at this, I think to myself, man, I hope in the generation that comes after us, what they would say most about the men and women of a local church called Pursuit is that wherever they went, cities were turned upside down. It's gonna be safe tonight. We've gone overboard with security. We'll have too many. It'll be fun tonight. It'll be powerful tonight. But most of all, what we are doing this evening is equipping ourselves with the full armor of God. Because our battle is not against flesh and blood, but principalities and powers of darkness. For in this world, you will have trouble, but be of good cheer. For Christ has overcome the world. I know it's dark in Seattle, but it's time for somebody to turn on the lights. And we're gonna do that with a march at 4.30, a service at 6 p.m. And we're gonna put the city on notice 
that our allegiance belongs to the God-man named Christ Jesus. And at His authority, every inferior spirit bows its knee and confesses with its mouth that Jesus is Lord. Come on, stand with me as we close. Come on, let me pray for you tonight.